0: welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Rory Van Leeu, Associate Professor of Law at Boston University School of Law. We will discuss his article, Federal Rules of Platform Procedure, which will be published in the University of Chicago Law Review. So welcome to the show, Rory.
1: Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad to have you on. I've admired your work, uh, for a long time. Uh, and I remember reading some of your previous papers on, you know, alternative dispute resolution methods and how businesses, uh, engage in dispute resolution. This paper seemed like a really natural outgrowth, uh, and really interesting kind of follow up to some of your previous work. But I, I wonder if you could start by just kind of broadly speaking about what what the problem is with online content moderation and why is it so difficult to solve?
1: Yeah, and I should start by saying that this topic is so incredibly difficult to summarize because we're talking about a whole vast universe of platforms that resolve different kinds of disputes and do different things, right? So Google is very unique with respect to the kinds of problems it often needs to solve compared to say Amazon or Apple or any number of other large platforms so to to say what is the problem is difficult to do without going into the specifics of a given platform but i would say overall also part of me just really was interested in diving into this topic as much as anything else. I didn't necessarily start this project because I thought, oh, there's a massive problem that needs to be solved. More, I kept seeing examples of people arguing or disputing something, and then Amazon was was the judge in that case, right? Deciding whether or not a given uh, small business seller should continue to be able to operate in the marketplace. Or... You know, Facebook needs to resolve disputes between, say, Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump, or two other users uh, with respect to a video that was posted that some party doesn't like and the other does, and it just—I kept seeing these examples out there. Some of which, quite frankly, I remember thinking, "Oh, they probably did the right thing there," but it just over and over again struck me as playing a judge-like role, and so I was. Very curious who was making these decisions, uh, which types of employees, how were they applying the internal rules in the companies, and how were those processes evolving? And so if I had to summarize the problem, I would say the biggest problem in my mind is that hardly anybody is thinking about platforms as resolvers of disputes. You know, we we have a lot of other issues with them, content moderation and monopoly power and consumer protection. But I, I just wasn't seeing a lot of people thinking about this role. And and so I I wanted to first of all shed light on it and make it clear that wow, I mean platforms, the whole nature of a platform is to connect two sides, right? And that inevitably puts them in the middle of Some conflicts.
0: Well, maybe because the problems are so specific to particular platforms, you could identify that you think are some that you think are particularly representative. Sort of what kinds of problems tend to arise on a Google, a Facebook, an Amazon? Why are they important and something we should care about? And at least to this date, How have platforms gone about trying to resolve or at least decide those problems?
1: In their early days, Google, Amazon, and Facebook let users settle their own quarrels. And in fact, my sense is that they really didn't want to get involved too much in the dispute resolution processes, but they eventually realized that they had to. And so now people may suddenly find themselves privately adjudicated, unable to sell on Amazon. Unable to find their friends on Facebook or unable to take down misinformation on Google. And so, one of the challenges with platform dispute resolution is that what's at stake can be really important for private individuals. You know, a, a company that has spent years building up its business and solely relies on Amazon to reach its customers. If it is suddenly adjudicated in a way that causes it to lose access to those customers, perhaps because a competitor put suspicious reviews on the product pages, then somebody's livelihood could be taken away. And that's actually one of the common situations that arises in Amazon is that you have a suspension of an account. And then all of a sudden you have all these employees in a small business who no longer have a livelihood because that business was was solely dependent on Amazon. And so one of the issues is account suspensions, lack of access. Facebook faces a similar problem. Only there it's not as much economic in terms of the consequences, but more social or speech related, right? People may lose access to an important support network or means of getting their word out or participating in public debates or elections or whatever it may be so you have that set of remedies if you will that the platforms use of, of suspending people's account and and the important stakes and and so if if you think about how these processes have evolved and how at the in the early phases Google and Amazon and Facebook and the like didn't really want to get involved as much as as they could um, they could have from the outset, then you, you start to see how the problem has kind of expanded in some ways uh, as they've become more involved because inevitably they're going to make mistakes, right? And how much they invest in getting those decisions right is going to, in part, determine whether or not they make good decisions. And so I think one of the big problems, in other words, is that... They may have underinvested in getting this right once they decided that they were actually going to play this judge-like role. And so they've made a lot of mistakes. And one of the challenges with even just saying that is the problem is that it's so hard to know. We don't have the data. You know, how many did they get right versus how many they got wrong? And so it's possible that if you compared their success rate to that of, say, public courthouses, that they might actually look good by comparison. I don't think so. You know, a lot of the evidence is anecdotal, in other words. And so one of the best things I can do is just to say there's a lot of, there are many signs that these platforms aren't getting a lot of these disputes, right? And that it's having an incredible impact on people's lives because we live in a world in which platforms provide such essential services and an array of spheres of human activity.
0: So... Rory, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the specific problems or issues that kind of motivated your research in this area and got you to thinking about, you know, why content moderation is such an intractable problem.
1: Sure, to give one example, a few years back one family had worked really hard to build a successful book selling business through Amazon, But that mom-and-pop business found itself suddenly restricted from selling. And that meant that the 14 people who depended on those sales, including three children, lost most of their household income. And the family reached out to Amazon over 500 times. And as the small business owner testified in Congress, we were never given a reason. Amazon didn't even give us a notice. So that's an example for, for Amazon. With Google, the more visible problem isn't as much that you can't use the surface, instead it's that you can't get out. So imagine if your law school experience was like Caitlin Hall's. From the time she was an admitted student, the top search results on Google for her name falsely accused her of sleeping her way into Yale Law School. And in one of her first law firm interviews, the interviewer started by referencing those accusations. But she couldn't get Google to do anything about this. So we're talking about an incredible ability to shape people's reputations by deciding what the top search results are, but without any law that would hold Google accountable for the accuracy of what it produces. And I'll admit, it's very hard to know how representative any of these examples are, but they at least indicate that it's a sphere of activity that merits greater attention.
0: To the extent we know... How do platforms actually go about resolving these kinds of disputes? And there's, do we even know what kind of decisions they're making all the time? I mean, I recall I spoke to Evelyn Dueck a while back, and, and she was really concerned about transparency in terms of how platforms make decisions. D- do you th- agree that that's a problem?
1: Yes, transparency is a big part of the problem both on the substantive side in terms of what rules these platforms actually apply and in terms of the procedures that they use. When they're using a human being, for example, versus a bot to decide your case, we just have very little insight into. Over time, they've gotten better about posting more information about their processes, but there's still a huge gap between, say, what we can learn about a given public court process and what we can learn about platforms dispute resolution. And one of the reasons that's an issue is because we have very little sense of how consistent these decisions are. You know, we don't know whether people are being adjudicated differently based on say the number of followers they get generally a lot of companies will, give people special treatment if they say have a a greater spending capacity in terms of banks or credit card companies and so on. And there's reason to believe that at least some platforms would do the same with respect to users. And so there's a whole set of questions we would have if we had more information that could help us understand how good a job these platforms are doing in terms of dispute resolution.
0: In your paper you talk about dispute resolution mechanisms in other industries. I wonder if you could talk ab- about how those developed and why you think they might be instructive for thinking about dispute resolution in a internet platform context.
1: Yeah, there's a whole industry around advising companies to resolve disputes better with customers. You know this is one of the areas of study in say business schools. It's a it's a subset of customer service, really. And there's a lot of evidence that historically companies didn't really get how important it was to offer effective dispute resolution. And so a lot of companies historically were losing customers because when disputes arose, they just weren't treating them, treating their customers well, or weren't communicating the thoughtfulness of their decision making effectively and so if you look at dispute resolution in other areas you tend to see overall a trend towards better dispute resolution but also you see a lot of a lot of companies varying their dispute resolution sometimes in accordance with the amount of competition they face. So a Comcast doesn't provide as good of dispute resolution as a hotel would, in part because for most of the country, there are one or two choices maximum for internet and cable services. And so there are actually laws in most states requiring Comcast to have a live human being available during regular business hours because the company didn't feel like it needed to provide that service to people when they had issues. And so if you look at what drives dispute resolution in much of the world, it's the profit motive, right? It's the desire to retain customers and that can be monetized. And over time, these companies have realized that investing in dispute resolution pays off. And I think platforms are also realizing that after those early days of taking a hands-off approach.
0: Well, one thing that really struck me about the kind of narrative of the paper is the extent to which the kind of opacity of the dispute resolution process makes people more frustrated with it than they would otherwise be. And I was really taken with your observation that it seems like in many of these cases, the actual outcome doesn't necessarily drive people's experiences and perceptions as much as their sense of whether
1: they understood what was happening. Understanding what's happening is very important. Also, surprisingly, the speed with which the dispute is resolved has an outsized influence, at least compared to what you'd think it might, on how people feel about the process. So actually, eBay was one of the early pioneers in really rigorously studying what was most important to its customers. And one of its biggest conclusions was that over and over again, people... Rated their experiences with eBay's program better if the dispute was resolved within a few weeks rather than if it lingered on for months. And that in some cases, in many cases, it was actually more important for them to get the dispute resolved quickly than for them to win in terms of their likelihood of then later coming back and using eBay. And so there's this whole set of almost subtle design features for dispute resolution, communicating well, treating people with respect and so on. A lot of this is is illuminated by the procedural justice literature that Tom Tyler and others have unearthed and companies are oddly almost starting to adopt the same kinds of structures and processes that You see public courts adopting because they realize that, yeah, transparency and treating people with respect and providing a neutral third party adjudicator, all these things are important to their customers, even though we might as legal scholars look at them and say, yeah, that's actually how we conceive of procedural justice. Well,
0: so how are platforms trying to solve these problems or make their dispute resolution mechanisms better? And is this something you think they can solve on their own or do they need help?
1: I think that platforms genuinely want to resolve disputes effectively, assuming they can do so in a cost-effective manner. And that means that there may be some categories of disputes where it wouldn't be profitable for platforms to invest in resolving them well, but we as a society might want to actually encourage them to do better, right? That that might be speech related or perhaps uh, disputes that implicate inequalities with respect to race or other factors. Even though where they're, Motivated to resolve disputes effectively, there's a question of whether we need to or we would benefit from helping them out. And I don't know that anybody knows the answer to that, really. But there is some evidence that companies overall historically have underinvested in dispute resolution in part because they're often thinking about other things. So you have these people within companies who are advocating for investing in better customer service, better treatment of people who have issues, and the chief marketing officer or the CEO or whoever is saying, yeah, but that's just not our top priority right now, even though they're making the business case for doing so. So there's an argument that public involvement could, in some ways, serve solving almost a a market inefficiency in which these companies aren't doing things that would actually be beneficial to to the market if they were to to do, not to mention the societal benefits of of having those additional processes.
0: Well, you point to some examples of – Kind of government and regulatory intervention in other markets in areas related to customer service and dispute resolution. Do you think any of those are instructive when it comes to thinking about what kinds of changes or which kinds of processes might be beneficial in a online internet content uh, moderation context?
1: Yes, I think that most people's first reactions to my basic proposal of the government getting more involved in dispute resolution, would be, well, wait, why would we want the law getting involved in these private disputes, right? After all, we don't have the government intervening when neighbors, say, get into a dispute about how to handle cattle in rural Shasta County, They just work it out largely. I mean, the public courts are always there as a backup, but we don't necessarily think of private disputes as requiring government intervention, especially when it's internal to a business as platform disputes are. But that's not a convincing argument against intervention because the law intervenes in private companies dispute resolution all the time, right? The law requires credit card companies to take a very specific step if a a customer wants to dispute a charge. If you tell a credit card company that the goods didn't arrive by law, they have to stop collection until they've looked into the matter, for example. And yes, I think we can learn a lot from these processes that we've developed in other areas. With respect to credit cards, there's a high level of customer satisfaction about the chargeback process, the chargeback process being the set of rules that are in place to protect customers that are the victims of fraud or say, didn't have their goods delivered. And then they can go to the credit card company to get that resolved. One of the things we can learn is simply that large companies can thrive even with dispute resolution required by law. So the credit card industry has done very well, been very profitable, even well after federal statutes required them to take all of these steps to resolve disputes with customers. Also, one of the interesting things about that is that in some other countries where they didn't have federal requirements, after some countries like the United States had required credit card companies to take these steps, these other countries, credit card companies also took those steps voluntarily, realizing that It was beneficial to the business model because it promoted trust among customers. And so one of the things we can learn is that it may not be as burdensome or harmful as we might otherwise be inclined to think when we just say in our minds regulation is uh, costly and harmful to businesses. So I think there's there's that just first um, getting rid of a knee-jerk, knee-jerk reaction that somehow imposing dispute resolution is weird or atypical or inappropriate. I think that's one of the things we can learn from these other industries where it exists. And the other thing we can learn from these other industries that have dispute resolution requirements is simply that... Some things work better than others. So credit reporting agencies, for example, don't function very well in terms of correcting errors on people's records, in part because the requirements imposed by law just really aren't that specific. And so it's easy for the credit rating agency to just go through a superficial motion and satisfy the requirements. You need to, if you're going to design dispute resolution rules to impose on private companies, you need to think about their incentives currently. Credit card companies have more incentives, better incentives, more aligned incentives uh, with consumers to get this right. Whereas credit rating agencies don't, in part because their customer is not the consumer as much as these companies that are buying our credit reports, right? And so we can look at this universe of publicly required dispute resolution and we can pick and choose and align the ones that worked and didn't kind of as a menu of options, if you will, uh, in designing dispute resolution for platforms.
0: I can't help but wonder what you think internet platform dispute resolution ought to look like and where you think that intervention of some kind is likely to be necessary in order to steer the development of these systems in the right direction.
1: For me, it's easier to observe that some kind of public intervention might be warranted than to describe what those rules should look like. And partly because we just don't have a lot of information, good rigorous data about what's happening behind closed doors. But some of the most straightforward rules are giving notice and an opportunity to be heard, maybe for some categories of punishment, such as banishment, even assurance that an actual human being would consider the case on appeal. Probably, the most controversial proposal in this paper is that something like the Facebook Oversight Board, but with more teeth should be required by law of all platforms. So just for those who aren't aware, Facebook recently launched a an oversight board consisting of academics and others who are paid for by funds that Facebook set aside. And it's an independent entity. And whenever a consumer appeals a content takedown decision by Facebook, the board has the ability to tell Facebook to put that post back up if it disagrees with the decision that Facebook made. And I'd like to see more of that kind of independent check imposed on platforms, again, at least for those types of disputes that have these important implications, like people's reputation is on the line, say, uh, or their livelihoods are at stake because some merchant is now being cut off from its sales because Amazon made a mistake. Do you think
0: that Facebook created that oversight board and has gone in the direction that it has in relation to dispute resolution and content moderation in response to kind of market-based profit incentives? Or did it do it for some other reason? And what, if anything, does Facebook's decisions in this area tell us about other platforms and the kinds of incentives they're
1: responding to? I think Facebook was facing an unusually acute level of public discontent with just about everything they were doing. And so they were striving for a way to improve both their public image, but also just their ability to handle these, in some ways, intractable problems. So Facebook's creation of this oversight board in my mind was motivated both by a recognition that almost no matter what they do, they're going to make a lot of people mad, right? If they decide to take down certain posts, there's always going to be a group of people saying, well, you shouldn't be censoring those people. And there's going to be another set of it, potentially important stakeholders who are going to say, well, that was a good decision. And so they, they almost can't win either way. And so by pushing some of these final decisions to an outside body, they can relieve themselves, if you will, of some of the the pressures or the inevitable discontent that may arise given, given the nature of the disputes they're resolving. So I think they see it as both a public relations move and maybe just genuinely, even if they weren't worried about their public image, maybe they were realizing that, well, we need some help here. And so let's try to get some of these really smart and respected people involved, and perhaps they can do a better job. But there's no doubt that, in my mind at least, that Profit motive, the survival of the company, and so on were the biggest motivators for implementing the Facebook oversight board. And that's and that's probably pretty normal for a company. And I also, at the same time, think that if there wasn't so much pressure, so much public pressure on Facebook, I don't think they would have done this. And that's one of the reasons why I have to wonder why the law imposing these on other platforms might not make some sense. because. It shouldn't take an inordinate amount of public pressure for a company to to improve its dispute resolution processes.
0: So, Rory, in in closing, I, I found your suggestion that there seem to be kind of market failures in internet dispute resolution that could be addressed potentially by different regulatory moves a really intriguing and compelling one. But I couldn't help but wonder about the incentives on government itself in relation to making this kind of intervention, and wondering, you know, whether and what kind of incentives we ought to be regulators having when and if they do engage in these kinds of interventions, because it seems like in the internet information context, there's a lot of potentially undesirable incentives on government actors as well. And at least from my perspective, you know, debates around things like section 230 while warranted haven't been terribly heartening for me in terms of the quality and likely efficiency of the proposed regulatory changes.
1: There's no doubt that, that we can't guarantee public involvement in these private disputes will be successful in advance. My hope would be that because we've had so many other examples that we could draw on, both in terms of Section 230, uh, copyright, credit card, credit rating agency, and other areas where we've imposed dispute resolution, that we could Learn from all of these and draw on the successes and failures to create a better system. But I think that whatever intervention we may choose, we have to be ready for the (laughs) reality that it's still going to be messy. And so I see public oversight of dispute resolution as moving platforms along a spectrum from wherever they are currently, which is uh, mixed results, ideally towards better results because you have a little bit more accountability, a little bit more transparency, a little bit more objectivity or third-party checks introduced into the process and thereby making it better. But there's no way we're going to get to a system that gets it right all the time in a very efficient manner to the satisfaction of all involved. And so I am optimistic that improvements can be made and I understand why there'd be some reluctance uh, given the many mess ups in both the private and public sector to even take that step. But I, I really see it as almost suggesting a partnership here because dispute resolution has so much of a judicial component. And there are these really important almost rights and public interests at stake. Maybe let's let's involve some of our more democratic institutions in the process and see if we can make it a little better.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Rory. It was really fun reading your paper and talking to you about
1: it. Thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>
0: got a wife and it's kind of funny she's an old sour puss and i call her honey every time i come home there she is on the telephone she talk about this and she talk about that she always sound like her head is fat got the voice like an old trombone on the telephone telephone yakety yak on the telephone all the time what a heck of a life when you got a wife on the T-E-L-E, telephone, telephone, yackety yak on the telephone. telephone all the time. What a heck of a life when you got a wife on the telephone, telephone. <whistles> yeah, say, see if that's the telephone. Yeah. Hello? The line is still busy. Hello, Mr. Johnson, have you heard? What? Promise you what? won't say a word. You know, Mrs. Svensson's mink fur coat, what? but it really came from an old goat. I saw Mrs. Olsen yesterday what? spending all her husband's pay. I suppose it's not for me to say, what? but she's got a head like a bale of hay. Telephone, yakety-yak on the telephone all the time. What a heck of a life and you got a wife on the T-E-L-E. Telephone, telephone, yakety-yak on the telephone. All the time What the heck of a life, and you got a wife on the telephone. Telephone. Hello. The line is still busy When it come to gossip she really shine. Number one talker on the party line Got all the news before it's stale Like when Yelmer got drunk and he landed in Yale Got the whole town mad with her great big yap We'd all be happy if she'd lose her trap You can't get a dial tone on our telephone Telephone, yakety yak on the telephone all the time what well, the heck of a life when you got a wife On the T-E-L-E Telephone, telephone yak a yak on the telephone. telephone all the time What well, the heck of a life when you got a wife On the telephone, telephone. Let's do it just one more time What well, a heck of a life when you got a wife on the Telephone